Hello, everybody. It's Charlie, and this is uh, another podcast. I um, want to remind you that the point, really, or, or let me say my current version or view of what these podcasts are, is that I think so many valuable things have been developed in the worlds of therapy to help people and to help therapists help people, and uh, and 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 definitely in DBT. Um, also other therapies, and uh, really this is based on the idea, the podcast is based on the idea that it just might be useful to directly get a lot of these insights, a lot of the possibilities, a lot of the principles of how people change, how people tolerate things, how people deal with hell, um, to get them out there directly to people um, in, a, in as possible a, non, a non-jargony way if possible, so people can just think about things and see if they're helpful. So um, that's what we're doing, and we'll be taking another topic on today in a sense. Um, I do want to say to anybody who does listen to this, um, I do continue to really benefit from hearing from people about the podcast and what it uh, means to them or what they think about. And in particular, I also want to invite you to inform me of a couple of things if you want to. One is um, situations, uh, since this is addressing one sort of type of adversity in life after another um, under the term of hell to hell and back. Um, and I'm and I have a lot of ideas about where to go with it, different types of adversity, and we've done some already and we'll continue. Um, but if there's some kind of adversity or situation that you um, wish could be addressed and you had some thoughts about that, feel free to contact me. Um, and the other thing is that I've benefited um, personally, and I hope some of you have, from hearing a couple of interviews, extended interviews, uh, one uh, with uh, a therapist from Puerto Rico and one with Cedar Coons uh, for three sessions of the podcast talking about the loss of her sister to suicide. And, uh, And so... I wanted, if, if anybody wanted to volunteer any uh, suggestions of people to talk to, to interview with who've been through different kinds of hell and have come through it and might have some lessons for us, um, feel free to let me know about that. If you yourself are one of those people, you could let me know that. And my email address is uh, the letter c.robert.swenson at gmail.com. Okay. Um, Hmm. Always wonder how to start. Uh, how to how to go into a topic that's a big deal. Um, and these are not very scripted when I do these, it, but they do result from a fair amount of thinking about them. Um, the idea today, the, the the theme of this one is how is it that accepting things as they are. How is it that acceptance uh, helps us to cope with being in hell? Uh, Sometimes it's the last thing we think of when we're in a terrible situation or when we're um, in great distress. One of the last things we might think of is just acknowledging and accepting that it is what it is and that it's painful. Um, And yet there's something, if done in certain ways, that I think is just one of the main ways that people... um, 
survive and 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 get through the other side and then eventually sometimes thrive uh, and get stronger and so but it just plays a huge role now any of you who've been listening to these podcasts know that I spent a couple weeks on uh, principles of how to change things and change behavior and there were five principles that I went over and um, and this is going to be a kind of you might say a uh, a counterpart or, or or counterpoint to that in that it's going to be some principles of acceptance to help us cope with with hell um, I want to say that when I'm talking about hell uh, it could it comes in 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 infinite variety of forms and I'll just say what I'm thinking of today are things like the following um, and these are most almost all of them are ones that have come to my attention uh, in one way or another just fairly recently here one would be that through no fault of your own um, you have uh, you have an illness that temporarily and intermittently incapacitates you. And as a result, you lose custody of your most beloved thing in your life, your child. And you don't have custody of your child, someone else does. And yet this child is the central focus and primary love of your life, and it's just uh, torturous. Or circumstances in your family drive you to the point where you participate in having a beloved family member committed to an institution of some kind and that experience uh, can be agonizing every step of the way filled with doubt and self-doubt and all kinds of negative emotions or maybe you are that person who is committed by your own family members and uh, how painful that is and how you wonder how you'll ever get over that or another one that I'm recently aware of your lifelong partner is gradually taken over by a dementing illness requiring you to manage that person and to make impossible decisions on your own often about uh, about that or or in an area or in an, in a group situation where there's a lot of conflict about what to do and taking away the freedom of the person that you have loved it's just uh, can be torturous or you are that person gradually undergoing a dementing illness um, I just went to a conference for four days a workshop to learn uh, the prolonged exposure treatment in DBT for um, PTSD so I have all kinds of thoughts and images in my mind of the uh, people having horrible memories of having been abused uh, sexually emotionally physically or neglected as a child the kind of thing that never never uh, might never go away on its own and this treatment is developed uh, to help move through it uh, and it has a lot of acceptance as well as change principles in it uh, fairly recently I'd say within the last year I knew somebody who had a close friend who was in a car accident and uh, the person's life was uh, sort of uh, hanging in the balance for a long time and it was just torturous for that person or or like Cedar Coons talking to us for three weeks about a family member who kills herself so 
there's so many things. Uh, some of them are big and dramatic like this. Some are, are not so dramatic. It might be that you're you're 20 or 22 years old and you you want to move on with your life, but you don't know how or you don't know what direction to take. And the more your life circles around and around and the more you feel critical of yourself and people around you might be critical of you and it's really hard to know how to get going. It can become a quiet, invisible form of, of hell as well or the person who is uh, seem, seems to be okay but is extremely anxious and very shy and never seems to be included in a group and is really upset uh, year after year at being alone and being uh, excluded from groups, not that may be on purpose, but through a combination of circumstances. Um, not long ago, I've also have been in contact with somebody who has an illness that's uh, just about impossible to diagnose. It's difficult. It's tricky, as there often can be these things and makes uh, the person highly sensitive to all kinds of things and causes such fatigue they can barely do anything barely function and yet because they don't have an agreed upon diagnosis and clear treatment plan can lead other people to misunderstand and misjudge what's going on and to judge what's going on which really uh, makes things even worse so these are the kind of things I mean and uh, obviously I could go on and on and many of you could go on and on with these but I think I'll just put those out there as um, as what I what I'm talking about. Um, the next thing I I want to say about this is that um, these things come to it. This is first sort of in a way basic idea uh, about these things. Um, all of them is that adversity comes to every one of us. There's just no one that escapes uh, some forms of adversity. Some get it worse than others, but everybody gets it, and, and there's small versions and big versions. And um, so, you know, I wouldn't call everything hell. Uh, some might be a small H as opposed to a big H, but it's natural. And, and then to have really negative or unpleasant emotions, of course, is natural. That's just part of who we are. And sometimes there's no immediate solution to the painful situation we're in. It might be a situation in our family that there's very unresolved matters in relationships in the family or just a lot of bitterness and a lot of uh, conflict or just a lot of frozen, quiet reactions. And it can go on and on. It can wear us down and there's no immediate solution. And we, and we find we can't make it better right away. But here's the thing. We can make it worse. We can make it worse, and we can make it worse instantaneously. And we do, typically, I think, more than not when we get into these situations. And so um, how do we make it worse? Well, um, you know, we think about the future, imagining all the terrible things that are going to happen. I mean, it's painful if you have a child, an adult child, that is not doing well. It is true, I can testify, the saying that everybody seems to know, that you're only doing as well as, as how you're most, you're, the child you have that's in the most pain or trouble. And so when that's going on, um, it's really difficult. And sometimes you can't do anything immediately about it. 
Um, but you can think about the future and imagine things getting worse and worse to where your child doesn't have a life and they're homeless and or they're sick or whatever's going to happen. And that can make it uh, horrible to be in it. Um, we also can uh, make it worse by linking the bad thing we're going through now with things from the past and thinking, here it is again. I just never get out of this. Uh, this seems to be the nature of me and, and the universe, and so it's awful. And so we can make things worse by um, connecting the current to the past, whereas the past is gone. The past is gone. It's living on in us, but it's, it isn't there objectively, and the future isn't there objectively, but we can really pile on our distress with these things. And there's another way we can pile things on, which is just our um, way of thinking about what we're caught in, what we're in. Let's say you're in financial distress and you've, you've run up big debt and that there's all kinds of reasons for that. And, and on top of that, you cannot get it out of your mind that you're a terrible person for ending up in debt and that you should never have been that way and certain relative of yours would never have tolerated this. And, and you can just do yourself in with judgments about yourself. And judgments are just what that says. They're, they're, they're thoughts. They do, we do ourselves in. I mean, life can be hard enough. And then on top of it, we add on our judgments. And it, it really makes a, a very heavy, you know, between the future anxiety and the past regret and judging ourselves as a bad person, a toxic person, an incompetent person, a stupid person. I'm letting down everybody who, who, who cares about me. I'm a burden. I'm not worth caring. This can go on and on and circle around and around until you just can't stand living. Um, and uh, so, you know, so there, there is the... Um, there is the real, I'm going to call it, this is the, the, when I was saying there's a first main idea here, is dividing hell into two layers. I think in most cases there's a layer of what I'm just going to call reality pain, which is the inescapable. Hello? One, hello? Oh, once it happens, it's an inescapable uh, reality of pain um, that any that that almost anybody would be in pain about, and that's completely natural. Just like uh, having a major injury and you have pain from it, of course you have pain from it. It isn't like you can just think your way out of that, though you hopefully can do the right things to change things and make yourself better. Um, and then there's the other layer, which is all these add-ons I'm talking about, and I'm going to say four main add-ons. If you think about your own situation. And you might want to think about what is your current version or most recent version of being in hell? Um, because you might think, gee, uh, am I doing one of these four things that really uh, adds to the burden of hell? And one is, uh, is the future, is really uh, thinking into the future, uh, worrying a lot, ruminating a lot. Uh, bringing up the past, having it bring up the past and how it's just sort of reopening old wounds because you're thinking about the past, which is actually not there anymore. And then you've got uh, judgments uh, of, about yourself. There's like a, an internal critic or judge going on. And the fourth thing is interesting, and it came up a lot in this workshop I'm talking about, which is one of the ways that we keep our 
reality pain going once something has happened to us is that we try to avoid noticing it. We try to avoid thinking about it. We try to avoid uh, going into it at all. And by doing so, even though it's completely understandable, in many ways we perpetuate it. Uh, because once we've had something happen, let's say a traumatic thing's happened, an abusive relationship or abusive event, um, and we think about it, but then we can't stand thinking about it, so we don't think about it anymore. And it grows bigger and bigger while we don't think about it. It, it starts to become a larger thing even than it was and takes over parts of our lives where we start to be afraid of things that actually most of the time are not that dangerous. And the more we do that, um, the more we narrow our lives and the more that we allow this to grow without addressing it, without looking clearly right at it. And so there is all these ways we can avoid things that make it grow. I'll give you an example. Um, it's an example I used actually in one of these podcasts, I think, for something else. There's a woman that I was talking to that... Uh, the reality pain, let's put it this way, the reality pain in her life was that she was actually quite terrified of her husband's anger. Uh, and his, apparently his anger was intense. It would come and go. It could be quite explosive, never actually hurting her, but her worrying it was going to get to that. And so actually that was the reality pain. And she had children, and she just, but it turns out, that she really didn't want to think this about her husband. She didn't want to think about herself being in a, in a relationship, a marriage where she was actually had to be afraid. And what she ended up instead feeling, not that she did all this on purpose, automatically she just didn't feel that. She didn't think about that up to a certain point. What did she think? She avoided it. How did she avoid it? She spent her time thinking that she should be a better wife and that she's guilty of being a bad wife. And the problem with that is that wasn't the reality pain. That was the add-on. Um, because it wasn't the reality pain, it really couldn't be solved. It, you know, if you're guilty about something, and you really are guilty about something, and that's a reality, you probably are disappointing your own standards. You probably are letting yourself down. You're, trying to, you're doing something less than you should be doing according to you. And yet that wasn't the case with her once she was asked that question. And once she was asked that question, you know, what is it you're doing that makes you so guilty? In what way are you being a bad wife? She realized when she thought about it, really she couldn't think of anything. She thought she was doing what you're supposed to do. And yet it wasn't working. And then, and then it was in her own mind, once that was addressed that way, it emerged in her own mind uh, that actually what she was feeling was terror. Uh, and it was very upsetting to feel the terror because all of a sudden she had to confront the reality of her marriage, her household, and what she was doing. And she had been hiding out from it, avoiding it, uh, with an add-on of, of feeling a different feeling instead of the feeling that she was really frightened of. So that's the kind of thing that I mean is that there's the reality pain and there's the add-on suffering. I mean, and that's the way a lot of people break these down is that you, there's the pain that's inevitable in our lives. 
And then there's the suffering that results from the add-ons. Um, and we can't do always very much very fast about the actual pain, though occasionally we can if we actually look clearly at it. Um, but we can do things about the add-ons. And that's where acceptance comes in. Um, it really uh, begins with uh, once you realize that uh, you've got, you, you, you realize that there are these two different things and um, that there is a real pain there that can be validated. And then you could use some of the change principles that I was talking about before in the previous podcast to change something, to really address it specifically and to develop a lot of commitment to it and, and be perseverant in sticking with trying to change things in your life, whether it's physical pain you have or some uh, relationship pain or some job pain or whatever it is, that you can attack this and approach it systematically. But this other part sometimes and often has to come first that you really can't do much until you take care of the other. So let me tell you another story. This is a story that some of you, if, you're, if you've ever been to Teachings of Mine, and I probably have it in the book that I wrote, um, that you may have heard this story. If you have, um, that's fine. Just notice that one hears a story more than once, it's actually not the same story. Uh, because it'll be undoubtedly different in some ways, and also you'll hear it differently, and you'll hear it in this context differently. But here's the story. This, there, was re, there was a real reality pain, and there was a moment in, that I'm using this as an example because it, it's such a clear example of how acceptance can change things. Uh, a lot of years ago, I'd say in the early 90s, my wife and I had our first dog, um, and our dog uh, was a black lab that we started with when he was six weeks old. His name was Santino. He was named after one of the uh, characters in The Godfather, Sonny or Santino. And uh, he was a beautiful black lab and just a wonderful temperament, as they often have. He, he was a, became a large black lab, uh, 110 pounds at and when he was really fully grown. And he was just a delight. We just fell in love with this dog. Um, and, and it was during a time in our lives that actually there were some difficulties going on around us in our lives. And having this dog uh, turned out to be wonderful, which is sort of a pure, simple love affair with this dog. And then um, we, uh, and he was healthy up until a certain moment when he was one years old, literally almost on his first birthday, he had his first uh, seizure, and it turned out he had epilepsy. And that was the first of many, many, many seizures, grand mal seizures. And when, during a dog's grand mal seizure, they bark every, with every contraction of the seizure, so about every second. They bark really loud, like a sharp bark. There, of course, they lose consciousness. They're on the floor, lying down, uh, it's disturbing to see, but they bang into things. Uh, and after the seizure is over, which usually is true within, you know, less than a minute or up to two or three minutes, it's dangerous beyond that, but usually it almost always stops. And um, then he would, uh, then actually he'd, for a, at least an hour, he'd be disoriented 
and yet very energetic, and he'd be running around crashing into things. So it was very difficult. And uh, we were informed after he'd had a few seizures that m- most of, or many people with, uh, with a, a large dog that has a seizure disorder this early in life start to consider having the dog uh, either institutionalized or put, away, put, a, put down or something like that. And this is just not something we were going to think of. It just never even became a possibility in our minds. Instead, in the middle of the night, which is when he'd have a lot of his seizures, we just had an agreement that uh, if he had a seizure... Uh, one of us would get up um, with him, and when he woke up from the seizure and started crashing around, sort of unconscious, like a drunken dog, that we would put a long lead on him, like 20, 30 feet long, go outside uh, whatever time of year it was, and let him run around in circles while we held the lead and in the middle, and it sort of kept him from crashing into things until he just ran it out, which was the only way we knew how to do it and every in if two, two hours went by we'd wake up the other one so basically to tell this part of the story is to tell we were pretty devoted to this animal and um um and and here's what then next happened on a friday afternoon on a particularly rainy day i came home from work my wife was still at work i got home a little early like three thirty or 4 and uh and santino was in the middle of a seizure I don't know how long it had been going on, but then it didn't stop. And it was really frightening. I knew it enough, having gone through medical school, to know that status epilepticus, uh, a seizure that won't stop, uh, will exhaust the dog and kill it uh, or a human. And it's a, it's a really life-threatening emergency. So I called the vet and said, what should we do? And we lived in on White Plains, New York. And the vet said, uh, said, you know, there, there's no hospital around here, especially at the end of a Friday, that you should take uh, this dog to. You, you've got to get him down to Animal Medical Center in New York City. So we drove down. I mean, we drove down. That makes it sound awfully simple. All of this agony is going on. I'm having terrible thoughts about what's going on with him and whether we should have left him and whether, you know, whether we're doing things right. But meanwhile, I've just got to take care of this, which focused my attention on I had to get him into the car. And um, he's heavy, and he's seizing, and he can't help. And somehow I dragged him to the car, and I got him in the back seat of the car and sort of positioned him with some blankets and things so that he'd stay up on the seat while he's seizing. And then I get in the car and start driving. And it's a long drive uh, on, a, on a Friday afternoon and uh, the rain's coming down and um, it was a certain version of hell you know not a long-term version but oh my god it was really I was out of my mind and my wife uh, we we didn't have cell phones at the time it was quite a while ago and so I couldn't really alert her I just left home left a little note um, and then uh, took off and there we were on the highway uh, standing still in standstill traffic with him seizing in the back and barking every second. And I'm thinking, uh, this is unbearable. How am I going to do this? This is, seems like the longest ride ever. And, and I started having a lot of judgment about people in the other cars. Like, why, why are we all standing still here? Why, is, why aren't we all moving? You know, really beyond rational thinking about why can't everybody just go, you know, as if everybody knows that this is an emergency. People are looking very passive and they're looking very casual and I've got a dog here that might die any minute and that is crashing in the back seat 
And so I was very distressed, and I really um, I had the add-ons. I had the inevitable re- reality pain of, oh, my God, I, there's the uncertainty about our dog. Our dog's going through a seizure. He may be crashing into things. It was terrible, just all the reality pain. There was no way around that this was going to be painful. But I was adding on to it immensely by by thinking of, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Or, oh, my God, when my wife finds out, you know, because she was, like, deeply in love with this dog. And um, and I thought, uh, and then I was thinking about what happened, how did this happen, what, should I come home earlier, how long has this been going on? All these things um, are piling onto my brain, and I just it was really hard to turn them off. And, uh, and also, I started to try to avoid noticing the dog because... Uh, by by turning on the radio, turning on music, thinking I'll distract myself, I'll use some DBT types of skills, focus my attention on this or that. I couldn't stand any of that. I couldn't stand the noise. I couldn't stand the distraction of the music. It just drove me further uh, up up. And so I turned that off. And then I tried to count in my mind and get, get my mind focused on that. I couldn't do that. And the dog's just like barking and barking, and I and I I keep wanting to look around behind me, to see did he fall on the floor? It turns out he had fallen on the floor. And now I'm thinking, oh my God, do I stop? And no, I can't do that. What if he breaks his legs? Well, if he breaks his legs, I mean, it's better that I get him to the hospital and give him a chance to live. And I just felt like I was in this uh, torture chamber, going down the highway. And so, as I went along. There was a certain moment when, when all of this, uh, the reality of it didn't change, and the reality pain didn't change. But all of the add-ons fell away at a certain point. And I don't know what caused it. If I knew how to do it, uh, I would just go out and tell everybody how to do this. It, and it happens sometimes, it doesn't. But, but looking for it's a good idea, because what I did, and what in DBT would be called radical acceptance, uh, was I just kind of, for some reason, I looked around, and I, I think it started with me saying, okay, is there something more I could do? Is there something more I can do? Can I drive faster? No. Can I find a different way to get down to New York City, to the Upper East Side where the animal hospital was? No. And this is, I know the way. I'm doing what I can do. Could I have done it differently? That's not the question. Is there anything else I can do to solve this problem better than I am now? And I just thought, Charlie, just be safe. Drive safely. Be smart. Watch out because you're all revved up. And don't do something stupid that makes things worse. And, and I said to myself, and you know what? He might die. Uh, this is a reality. He might die. There's not much more I can do about it right now. Or he might bark all the way there, and maybe they'll be able to help him, or he might break his legs. And somehow, I just started thinking, yes, all I, I sort of like my mind got clearer. My mind settled around the facts of the situation and what I could actually do. My mind came into the current moment, not the future, not the past, not the judgments, but just focused on, okay, this is the situation, and what can I do? And I looked around at him, and he was on the floor, and I thought, okay, all right. And I actually felt a little bit of 
God, we're going through this together. I had this kind of warm moment of we have been devoted to this dog, and this dog is still alive, and we don't know what's going to happen. Let me appreciate that I am in this car with this dog and that we are connected to each other, and I'm doing what I can. And I wish it was more, but, I but it isn't. It's whatever it is. And somehow that kind of radical acceptance completely of what's going on um, allow, at the same time allowed the worry about the future, the connection with the past, the judgments and the avoidance of it all to fade. It's sort of like faded away so that I just had the pure pain, uh, but also gratitude of being with this dog at this really critical juncture. And then as I drove along, my whole body felt like less tense. Like, okay, what can I do? To be tense doesn't seem to help. Um, so I'll just drive. I'm just driving. I'm noticing. I'm thinking about the dog, thinking, is there anything else I can do? And somehow in that context, I, while I couldn't do anything more to solve the dog's problem than what I was doing, I thought about, what, you know, what can I do to solve my problem? The degree to which I'm aroused and revved up and upset. Um, how can I calm myself down? And then, then, and only then, was I able to use some of those same things I had been trying to use before that didn't work, except I did it different. I started to count the dog's um, Santino's uh, barkings and, I, and looking at the clock in the uh, car and I was timing it and seeing, well, how many, how many barks per second or how many barks per minute, what is the pace? And is it steady barking all the time? And you know, I wonder why he's barking. I wonder what that's all about, that they, they bark all the time. Do humans bark? And it was sort of as if I was seeing the reality and then noticing and, and, and I was finding the rhythm of the barking. And then I had to have, of course, the windshield wipers were on because uh, it was still raining. And I started to l notice the rhythm of the windshield wipers and the rhythm of the barking and compare the two. See, how many barks per windshield wipe was there? Kind of uh, amazing that you're driving down thinking about things like that. But actually, it was kind of comforting and soothing. And it wasn't making me more crazy. It just gave me something to distract my mind with that actually was working. But the, I'm telling you, the only reason it was working was because I had radically accepted that the reality was what it was. I, and I really don't think you can use as many problem-solving techniques until you can accept. And sometimes it's uh, minutes, hours, days, or years or longer to accept certain realities in life. And during that time, your main strategy is often, well, I refuse to accept this. I just won't accept this. I won't. This is, this, this is not happening to me. Um, I'm, I'm winning. Things are going to come out all right. And you just kind of like fighting reality and you, and, you, and, you, and you stay in mode of non-acceptance. In the mode of non-acceptance, there's not as many things available to you to help yourself settle down, help yourself think straight. But if you do accept, okay, let me just look square in the eye at the situation that I'm facing. And let me take it in. Let me see that it is what it is. And in a way, it is what it has to be because of everything that came before. There's just no way around it. This must have had to happen. I mean, given everything that came before, the, here it is. 
and it's changing by the minute and maybe it'll get better maybe it'll get worse and and you just have to kind of ride with with that recognition of reality which is really hard in that situation and then um and then i just think the mind gets smarter i think it's taking care of your brain it's taking care of yourself a lot of this is like gardening you're pruning, you're, you're weeding, you're looking at, the, at your brain and seeing what is getting in the way. And you realize, well, these add-ons are getting in the way, but also I'm just not accepting what's really there and looking at it in a cold, clear way. So I think there's a lot of take-home message. Oh, by the way, about Santino, you may wonder if you got into this story, what happened? Well, we actually did get down the Upper East uh, Side of Manhattan, um, the East Side Highway, and we got off and we went and we pulled up to Animal Medical Center and he was, it sounded weaker, but he was still barking. And uh, they were ready because the vet, our vet had called them in advance and they knew he was coming um, and they came right out. They were wonderful. They took the dog um, in on a stretcher uh, thing and they carried him in. And they hooked him up to an IV and started having him have Valium, which helped within about 20 minutes. It sort of slowed down and then stopped the seizures. He continued to uh, make it, and he was exhausted and depleted, but they, he was there for a couple of days. They took really good care of him, and he made it. And it was just very touching and wonderful that he was still going to be with us, though we wondered how are we going to handle this seizure disorder. And... Um, Long story short about that, because it was a good ending, was that we found a vet, a vet who used to be the head of the Animal Medical Center. He was a vet neurologist in Westchester, New York. Um, and uh, he guided us and he worked with us. He gave the dog anticonvulsant medications at a level that no one else was willing to give, like really high levels, to stop the seizures. Uh, but when that did damage to our dog's liver, uh, he then recommended that we use an herb, milk thistle, from a Whole Foods type of store. And uh, that detoxified his liver successfully. And he lived with us for about six years um, with, without seizures. He was a little slowed down by the medicine. And then he, had, uh, he developed a, an acute pancreatitis at some point and died of that. Um, but it was a, a wonderful uh, set of years with him. Um, so... In this story, for the purposes of what I'm talking about now, which is, which is definitely going to go on next time, too, because I'm not going to get to all the principles that I wanted to get to, but they're all buried in these stories. Um, one, the one thing was, one message in this, or one lesson in this, is that the reality pain was obvious, the fear of losing our dog uh, with all the love that we held for the dog. Of course we were upset. Of course, I was upset. The, re the reality pain was that. There's no way around that. I mean, that's like, you know, a, 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 a natural fear of losing him. The add-ons were imagining that he would die, uh, thinking that we shouldn't have allowed this to happen, uh, you know, thinking that I could definitely do something about it, and I just had to screw up all my energy and tension and do everything I could with my adrenaline and that I would save him, you know, in a, in a hero mentality, which, of course, is not realistic. I mean, I might be able to, and I want to do what I can. But I was really tense about that. And I thought, if he dies, it's going to be my screw-up 
Um, and I also thought that if he did die, I mean, I was working on the assumption that it would be unbearable for me and, un- and, and twice as unbearable for my wife and that it would be just terrible. Um, so there's, uh, I also was, I think, distracting myself from a clear look at the reality of the painful situation by being so frenzied and so distracted and just pouring myself into it uh, to, to, to save him and think of everything I could think of, most of which was useless. Uh, it was just sort of judging and worrying. And so I think this is not, this, this is one little example, but I think whatever other version of hell it is, this is the thing that does us in, is when we get our brain going and these things pile on. The next lesson I think is that, um, uh, is that there was no way if I was going to be uh, immersed in these add-ons, uh, it was just going to increase my agony, and there was no way I was just going to be able to calm down and become more clear and more focused and do what needed to be done, both about the dog as well as about myself. Um, I think the next lesson is that there was this moment of radical acceptance of accepting the reality exactly as it was, that it was indeed happening, that things were exactly as they were, that he might die, that he might not die. None of that was determined, uh, that things change every moment. He, uh, and, and realizing that my ability to, uh, to get the dog there any faster, which was my only possible solution, uh, really was limited by my circumstances. There wasn't much more I could do other than to drive well and drive safely. And once I realized that, it sort of settled me down. And the fact that he was thrashing about, that I really couldn't do much about that, that it was going to cost too much time to pull off the highway and try to do anything about that situation. If he broke his legs, he broke his legs. And that, that, was, that wasn't going to be the thing that was going to kill him. And when my nervous system did settle down, uh, I could think more realistically. And I realized that his fate was not only in my hands, uh, but I could just do my part. And and finally, that in the state of accepting this reality and letting most of the add-ons fade away and go, um, that I could uh, take care of Santino as much as one possibly could and that I could do things to soothe my own nervous system that was now possible. And I did find many. I even started singing a song from when I was a teenager and uh, and I was on a date with a girl and I remember in the car on a rainy night, and the windshield wipers were going. And if any of you who are as old as me might remember a song that went, uh, "If the you know the windshield wipers, what was it? The windshield wipers seem to say together, 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 and I could hear them say, no, something staying forever." So I'm singing this song to the windshield wipers while the dog is barking. I felt like we were a little duet and that actually the song is about being together in the rain. I think it's called Rhapsody in the Rain. And uh, it actually helped me calm down and feel together with him. So it, it, uh, it turned out pretty well that way. And, and we, we were fortunate that he made it. Um, so that's the basic idea. I could give so many examples, but I'm not going to give more examples right now. I want to start into saying, like, if you wanted to apply what happened in that story and what happens in other stories like that uh, when people are coping with adversity, 
um, as a general principle that you could apply to your own situation, I would break it down into five principles. Um, and, uh, of course, there's lots of strategies and skills and everything, but this was my extract from learning DBT as well as I did and the acceptance aspects of DBT because DBT is a treatment that basically tries to change behavior but in a context of deep acceptance that things are as they are. Um, so, principles. If you guys can stand it, I feel like it. But maybe it's probably just I get emotional when I tell this story, so it's no longer than usual, but it feels like a long time to tell it. Um, um, first principle. I'll just call it the principle of the present moment. And these principles... When I say these are principles, they really are boiled down from everything I find in DBT that has to do with acceptance, but they also, where they arise from, is the insights of more than 2,000 years of, of uh, spiritual practices by people, uh, definitely Buddhist practices and meditation. These are insights that you'd find in any, any Buddhist teachings um, and they apply, I mean, they really are practically useful. Um, so the first one is the absolute importance and the radical nature of bringing one's mind into the present moment. Because usually when, when we're in a crisis or we're in hell or it's long-term hell, let's say it's chronic pain that won't go away and we just, there's lots of judging that goes on and lots of uh, imagining into the future and things and it is but the idea is that if you wake up at a given moment and I don't mean from a sleep but from psychological sleep but if you wake up to reality in the moment and realize that the only reality the only real news going on is in the here and now that that's all there is and that all these things about where did this come from and where is this going definitely heightens all of the anxiety and regret. Um, but really, all that's happening is this moment. It was me and Santino in the car. That was it. Um, and, and how do we detect the present moment? How do we ground ourselves? How do we, you know, as a Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist teacher, would say, uh, come back home or arrive home. Uh, or come back to the what he called the island of self. What brings you back to the island of self when you're flying around thinking of the catastrophe that you're in the middle of? And it is to realize that the only input that your brain is getting and your body is getting comes through the five external senses. And you are receiving input from the world all the time through your five senses and also your internal capacity to sense what's the state of things inside your body. And so that is the here and now reality. Um, and when you ground yourself by just noticing the sensations of your breath uh, or the sensations of your body or the sensations that tell you what's going on around you, if you just ground yourself in that and say, yeah, that's what's going on. This is what's going on, is this. I can't predict the future exactly. And, and, then, and it's sometimes in the middle of a bad life circumstance. Actually, it could be the case sometimes that nothing terrible is happening at that moment. 
but you're in the middle of a long, terrible slog. But right then, you're not. And so sometimes when people feel they have been in torturous situations constantly, actually, if they let it get more complicated than that, they're probably going in and out of torturous situations. And maybe now and then they could arrive into the present moment and just notice even, you know, just notice something about the the present moment, including even beautiful things in the present moment, uh, reminding oneself of things, just sitting and doing nothing else, seeing things as they are, uh, noticing when you're in the present moment, you start to get grounded. It's almost like arriving on the ground. It's, it's, it's your center of gravity gets heavier and deeper and you are grounded. Like you're putting roots, you're putting your roots into the ground and it's harder to throw you around when you do that because the ground is the present reality. And when you do that, you can start to notice how the future, thoughts about the future are literally that, thoughts about the future, predictions, imaginings, sometimes catastrophic imaginings, and the past is the past, it's history. And the judgments are, in a way, they're just brain firings, they're just neurons firing in a way that has become a habit in our lives based on how we think and where we grew up and and all the purposes it serves that we just start judging ourselves um, and the way we avoid what's going on, that we just flee, that we just go away. Um, and when when you can ground yourself here and now, and it's good to have ways to do that, it allows these uh, add-ons to soften, to see them for what they are, to let them fade. Don't worry, the future will be here any moment. Um, actually, and strangely, it never arrives. But um, but uh, another moment's going to happen, and then another moment. So all of those things that are recommended in mindfulness practices and other things about just be here. If you're eating, just eat. Just notice that. If you're taking a walk, just notice the walk. Do nothing else. Be here in the moment. These things which have almost become like platitudes in our culture, it's a, the word mindfulness has become almost a commercial entity. Um, but actually, the, how important these things are in grounding you so that you can't be thrown around as much by, the, um, by these uh, add-ons. So that would be one principle, awaking into the present moment, just letting yourself again and again, where I think you can get more nurturance it's almost like, okay, let me go back into the present moment and just be here. And I think something very important happens to the nervous system that allows you to kind of like clear yourself again and clear yourself again. Now, a second one would be that you recognize, okay, here's the, here's the present moment. And some of that will be sensations and emotions and things that actually are part of um, the painful scenario that you're in the middle of, the predicament. And, and so the second principle is to recognize that things as they are right now, however unpleasant or however pleasant, that things as they are right now are the way they are right now because of the causes that led up to them and the conditions that led up to them that they really are the manifestation of causes and conditions. And once the causes and conditions are in place, this is what happens. And so there's a history, and you might say that it means that, um, that the way things are now could not have been any other way. 
given how things were a quarter of a second ago and a quarter of a second both before that and before that and before that and before that is that everything is as it had to be given the past. And so it may be awful. In fact, it could be a tragic thing that's gone on. And, and the idea of acceptance sounds so awful. I'm not going to accept this. I just won't accept this. But acceptance doesn't mean anything other than this is what it is. This is true. It's the word acceptance should almost begin with the word acknowledgement, that this is reality. That is acceptance. It doesn't mean, oh, oh, this is great. This is okay. This is, I agree with this. I approve. So it's really just kind of acceptance. It just means uh, that things are as they are. Things are as they had to be given everything up to now. I can't go back and change things. But actually, I could change things now if I have an idea of how things operate. I could change things now, and the next moment could be different, and the next moment after that. So I can do things about that. It isn't destiny. Um, so uh, I think that's the, that's the idea, if that once you can just see not only is are things as they are right now, and you get grounded in the present, but things are as they came to be. And it helps, it helps if you grasp that and keep hanging on to that when you start to say, oh, my God, I never should have done this. I never should have done that. Or why did so-and-so do this? Or why did so-and-so do that? And I just, you know, I'm good at teaching this, but I'll tell you, I fall into this all the time. I mean, just thinking, oh, my God, if I hadn't done this, because I sort of have an adult version of ADD, and I'm just, you know, oh, my God, now I've left another sweater in this place. Now I have to go back there. If only I had thought this, if only I had thought that, you know, and, and then... But it's, you know, it's done. Uh, so the more you can just say, well, this is as it is, and I'll try to learn from it, but actually now I just have to take care of business, um, then we don't get as, uh, as, as uh, much in hell. We don't add on to the suffering. Third principle. Um, first one being the awaken to the present moment. Second one being to recognize that things are as they had to be. And another way of saying that that's a little more provocative is, is that things are perfect as they are, but uh, that sort of can throw you off. And the third one is to, is to recognize another finding from people's uh, spiritual and meditation practices, but it's really available, of course, to all of us, is that um, everything, 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 everything is impermanent. Every moment, there's nothing that stays the same. I'm sitting in a room where there's some books, there's a bookcase, there's, uh, I'm looking out the window at some trees, I'm looking at a wall. All of these things are changing every moment. And certainly every cell in my body is changing every moment and everything I say to you is changing me. And, and it's just sort of like nothing ever stays the same. You can count on it. So one important thing about that in terms of helping you with hell is that if you are in hell, whatever you're in right now, if it's in a terrible emotion, it will change. Allow it to change. Let it be and let it change um, because it will. You actually don't have to go massacre your experience. You can just notice that you can sort of reframe things. You can dedicate yourself to certain things and things will change and hopefully for the better sometimes not for the better but things do come and go and the other thing about that that's so important 
is that it means that what's happening right now is a once and only time it's ever happening. So it really does suggest that you embrace this very moment, that it's just going to be gone. And the only thing that makes it the same is actually if you keep the add-ons going, if you keep saying to yourself, things are terrible, things are terrible, things are terrible, things are terrible, things are going to stay terrible, that seems like it stays the same. But even that, of course, if you look at it carefully, is probably changing every moment. But that sort of, that sort of papers it over. The fact that things are actually constantly in motion, that makes it seem like, no, they aren't. They're just bad. They're bad all the time. You can count on it. You can expect it. Don't expect anything to get better. And, and of course, that, 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 that's sort of a deal killer in terms of trying to uh, survive or get out of hell. Um, so I think the uh, principle of impermanence is a really important thing. It has lots, Each one of these things has more implications than what I can say in this amount of time. The fourth principle that can help with being in hell and it's a big one, and I've already said so much about it, almost everything other than using the word itself, is the, is the principle that, uh, that when we get attached to the add-ons, when we're attached to our perceptions, we're attached to our imagination, we're attached to our regrets and what happened in the past, we're attached to our judgments, and we're attached to our standards, this has to be done this way, this has to be done that way, it has to be this, this must mean that, you know, all of these are attachments. They aren't attachments to human beings. So it's not meant that way at all. But when we're attached to how things should be and how, how we think things are, but actually it's more complicated than that, things are always changing. Things are more complicated than they appear. And so when we get attached to these sort of judgments and simplified ideas and, and imaginings of the future, you know, when we're attached to these things, uh, it definitely adds to our suffering. It's like we're uh, we're like fly. What is it called? Fly paper. What we're like um, Velcro. Um, we go around attaching and adhering to ideas, to shoulds, to thoughts that actually make our life worse. And then it's hard to let them go, and we live with them for a long period of time. We get very cynical. We get very stuck. And so to realize that is to realize that the counterpoint is to, if it's possible, to let those attachments go and just arrive into this moment as they are now, knowing that they could change and knowing that you could work at changing them, then maybe they can soften, some of these attachments can soften and maybe fade away and make it more possible to cope with this very moment. You aren't having to cope with the rest of the universe at the same time. The final one I'm going to say is a big, a big one to talk about, and I may reserve next time to say much, much more about this because I think it's huge, interesting, and it's the most difficult one to teach. It's the most unnatural one to think about. Uh, but I think it's really helpful and has to do with recognizing that one huge aspect of reality uh, is that in spite of how it appears, everything is extremely dependent on the things around it and everything around it. And to, to a degree that if I were to tell you in this next one minute that I have left, 
I would just sound psychotic and you would think something should be done for me um, because uh, I just sound out of my mind and it, it, because it is kind of mind-blowing. Um, so I want to talk about this principle of interbeing, interdependency. It relates to the recognition that in many ways there really are no boundaries and there are no unique selves. And in a Buddhist uh, teaching it frame, it's called emptiness. Um, I want to talk about that because that's implications. And so that'll. So next time, the next podcast, I'm going to continue on the theme of acceptance, using this as a foundation. What I've said today, and also moving into this fifth of these five principles. Um, so if any of you want to write write me, great. I have heard from various people that people are using this more than I thought, which was thrilling to me. Since that's the point. Um, so take good care, um, and I just want to make sure on my calendar, yeah. So next, next Wednesday, I'll be uh, talking again, all right? Uh, be well. Uh, until next time, bye-bye. That covered a lot of material. That was like probably one where he covered the least amount of the ones he said. He's, he's just, Jesus. Excuse me.